Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right. Today's podcast is titled India, Canada's Gateway to the Indo-Pacific. And to talk about this, I have with me on the podcast, Shuvalai Majumdar. Shuvalai, welcome. Kushalji, nice to see you. Good morning. How are you? I'm going good, man. All right. So let's start with this. This is your first time on the podcast. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Uh, happily. I Listen, I'm, um, I occasionally write... I did some advising in government. I lived abroad for a while. I'm <laughs> from Calgary. I am. Um, I'll, I'll formalize it a little bit. I'm the program director for foreign policy and national security in Canada's Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, we're a, a, a top think tank in the country. Uh, prior to the, to this role, I was the policy director to uh, Canadian foreign ministers during the Stephen Harper government. Um, and then before that, I lived for four years in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, working with an American organization chaired by uh, then-Senator John McCain in trying to help Afghan and Iraqi civil society, media, uh, democratic institutions. So that's my background, um, and uh, I'm happy to be here and to wish you and all of your viewers a very happy 75th anniversary of their independence. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So, so, so I want, I, I'm interested in this bit now the the iraqi and afghani bit how was that gig how is it living in that part of the world listen i was there in 2006 to 2010 in both of those countries um i uh it was a very difficult time in iraq in 2006 you'll recall that was at the height of the sectarian war that had spilled into the streets uh after the american-led invasion and what happened was um people in their insecurity turned to places that they felt could provide them protection. Too often it was religious identity um, and uh, the extremists on every end of the agenda dominated in Iraq. It made it very difficult for the vast majority of Iraqis who were trying to build a democratic future they were promised. Um, there was a, a lot of foreign interference uh, disrupting uh, Iraqi stabilization. And I would have to say uh, from the, the part of the United States and others, a fair measure of incompetence at the beginning of that effort. Now, Afghanistan is a very different thing. There's nothing really in common between Iraq and Afghanistan except for the time in which these wars were waged. Um, in Afghanistan, you found a country that should have been a federally designed constitution. But of course, Western planners came in, thought they knew best, concentrated power in the constitution in Kabul, 80% of decisions that would affect anybody in the remotest villages would have to happen off the desk of somebody in, in Kabul. English-speaking Afghans were elevated over Pashto, Dari, Tajik-speaking Afghans. Warlords were prioritized over uh, the democratic aspirations of local villages. Um, and it came at the cost of the Afghan people every step of the way. H.R. Uh, McMaster, the former American national security advisor, had, I think, paraphrased it really nicely when he said that the West had been waging 21-year wars in Afghanistan rather than one long view. And in doing so, uh, made decisions on the basis of very short-term objectives. Many of those relied entirely on Pakistan's deep, deep state, which I think today calamitously now rules Afghanistan through the Taliban Haqqani regime. Uh, in both places, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, the people that I was able to work closely with, which were majority Iraqi, majority Afghan, are incredible, beautiful, dedicated, brave people uh, who 
been victimized by the power games that their rulers have played over them. So it's a, it was, for me, it was a very uh, personal experience. I was there in my late twenties uh, and, uh, and it has stayed with me and informs much of what I even do today. But you know why I asked you this question, uh, you might find it, uh, I'm not trying to mock Canada, but you know, in the entire North American discourse, America has always been the dominant force. But so how is it as a Canadian going there? That's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> how do they view Canada? Do they have a view of Canada? Or they're just like America a kind of a thing? Well, I think they found that a Canadian working in an American organization was novel. Um, and I think the American organization just... You know, they couldn't find any Americans to send. I wouldn't have been an American casualty, so I was appealing on a few levels. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, when people looked at me in both of those countries, they identified more with my Indian heritage, which, ah. you know, I was born in Canada, raised in Canada. I belonged to a Bengali family from Calgary. Uh, and um, I, I tend to identify more as a Canadian than as with my Indo-Canadian heritage. Uh, but they were always very curious about where my family originated from. And I think it was that inter that inference that made it much more easy for me to connect with Iraqis and Afghans alike who loved India. All right. So you just mentioned something. I think I have to ask this. So you identify more as a Canadian. Now, something which I'm actually very happy of that, you know, if you remember uh, when we had met, once before, I had told you about this incident where my wife took offense to something, but I called her a Canadian. So good to hear that you identify as a Canadian. Now, when like, my audience is primarily Indian, right? So most of the people who are going to listen to us speaking, 65% of them out of the 100 that listen to this or 70% of them are actually Indians living in India who, who are, you know, basically accustomed to English language discourse. They find it at times they find it alien that a person who looks like them says they're not Indian, they're Canadian. And, and so, so how, how does a Canadian of Indian origin manage his or her relationship with the homeland then? Because it's very important because today's discussion is about Indo-Canadian relationship and you're representing Canada, I'm representing India. So how do, how do you manage that relation? It's a fast. Uh, thanks for the question. It's a fascinating question. So I, I'm ruthless in interest. I approach things from, you know, I, I was born in Canada, raised in Canada. I pay taxes in Canada. I am proud of my country. I'm proud of Canada with all due respect to the lovely people of India being the greatest country on earth. Uh, it has its problems, but it remains the greatest country on earth. And what I love the most about Canada is that it's on, it's built on the basis of ideas. It's based on the, on the basis, the aspiration of the rule of law, the dignity of any individual, and not the supremacy of one religion or culture over the other, uh, much like India and its constitution is. And a lot of people accuse me of having pro-India perspectives because of my Indian origin. I think one thing that my Indian origin provides me is a cultural sensitivity, a religious context. I honor my tradition and my heritage and what my grandparents and their forefathers had done for India and for Canada. Um, as you know, Canada and India share political heritage in the British Commonwealth. Uh, and so for me, I always marvel because I spent time walking through the halls of the Canadian Parliament and I see British architecture and British inferences. And the same happens when I go to uh, North Bloc, South Bloc in India to visit 
colleagues with a variety of different perspectives, but you see these common political heritage points that define our democracies. So perhaps I have a bit of an empathy toward how Indians conceive of their democracy uh, and what how important their freedoms are to them. Uh, and in that sense, I, I might have a bit more of a, a cultural perspective that helps. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I look at the issues of Canada and India purely from a Canadian interest perspective. I applaud great decisions made by New Delhi. I bemoan what, you know, India may have done uh, in the early days of its republic uh, by turning to socialism, both politically and commercially, uh, and even non-alignment, even though I'm empathetic as to why non-alignment was pursued. Uh, but I am more interested in the here and now. We're here, it's 2022. The world is very different. India is transforming. Uh, and its transformation is of incredible consequence for any observer anywhere in the world, uh, especially so for Canada and for Ottawa. And that's why I've come and arrived at the position, particularly as I've watched Indian reforms in the last 10 years, um, as it shakes off the idea of its colonial rajas. Uh, I, I'm, I'm particularly persuaded that it is in the Canadian interest to have a very strong relationship with India for the long term. Um, and, and there are many reasons as to why I think I can enumerate, but ultimately that's how I exist at that intersection of homeland and ancestral heritage. Uh, and uh, I think increasingly it's a, it's a wonderful place to be. So now let's, let's talk about this. Um, so how can we bridge Indian and Canadian interests, because that's that's what the core of our podcast is about. That's what we are interested in. I come uh, come at this podcast from an Indian perspective where I want to see how India can benefit. Like you said, you come to this from a Canadian perspective, how Canada can. So obviously you you feel very strongly about this, where you genuinely believe that Canada's gateway to the Indo-Pacific literally is India. So build your case for that. How, how do you think uh, when it comes to the Indo-Pacific region, for Canada, India is actually the gateway. Look, behind every conversation in the world today, behind the curtains of every conversation, is the question of the rise of China. And what I think Canada, many people in the West had done, you know, from the 70s onward, was invest in China's growth. The assumption was that modernizing China through reforms that Xiaoping had provided would also create an opportunity for moderation of its political class, uh, an appreciation for the rule of law from which it directly and perhaps disproportionately benefited, and provide the world a constructive partner in China. What we've discovered now, Beijing had never had those ambitions. Even Deng Xiaoping had said, bide your strength and hide your time, which begs the question, for what? What are you biding your strength and hiding, what are you hiding your time and biding your strength for? Um, and Xi Jinping has, has proven exactly what that is about in recent times, which is China's not interested in participating in the type of rules that shaped the international order for the last 40 to 50 years. It's intending to replace it with its own system, uh, having become such a major player in uh, geoeconomic and geopolitical affairs. So why India? And why is India as, as a gateway so essential to the West, to Canada moving forward? Well, every prediction that you look at now shows that the center of gravity for global growth is in the Indo-Pacific. That is the region of the world. In the next 50 years, 
see the most prosperity emerging relative to population and, and, and established standards of development. That means that billions of people are going to emerge into what we now call the middle class, that they will have stronger purchasing power and higher, higher demands for education and skills training and consumption. Uh, there's a pipeline of products and services that will develop this region that Canada can be a great partner for as a Pacific country. And at the heart of all of that uh, is the story of India and what India will be in the next 30 to 50 years. I mean, we've already heard the story of India doubling the size of its economy, already becoming bigger than France and others in Europe. Uh, I've written and made the case for why India should replace Russia at the G7 to restore the G8. The, the original seat that was provided to Russia in the 90s for the G8 was aspirational. It was, you know, Russia, the, the Cold War is over. Uh, let's pull up a chair for you at the table of the world's most advanced market democracies. Let us work with you as partners to grow your economy for your people. That hasn't come to pass. The Kremlin has made alternative decisions. And uh, I think largely as a result of Stephen Harper's advocacy, Vladimir Putin was disinvited from sitting at the G7, the G8 table, making it the G7. But now you've seen two successive, three successive G7 summits in which host nations invite Narendra Modi to join as an observer. And I think that's where aspiration is properly placed. Uh, why? Because the Modi government has made it clear that he is interested in pursuing economic reform and economic development, formalization of the Indian poor, and um, institutional infrastructure to develop the country in a way that India has never yet known. Uh, he has made it clear that India will pursue its own interests uh, you know, in its near neighborhood and beyond. And that's a, welcome, that's a welcome assertion because what you're starting to see is a recognition, I think, in New Delhi that more partners are required to manage China's rise and that more partners are required to ensure that, you know, ambitions that China might have to rewrite borders, whether it's India's or others, uh, are required to be able to, to, to ensure the kind of security that will underpin the prosperity I've just described. So in that sense, uh, for Canada, it's, uh, I think, a no-brainer in terms of looking at the end of the theater thinking of the priority countries that we have, whether it's Japan, Australia, uh, who are more traditional partners, uh, India and Indonesia as much more interesting, newer partners. Um, the story of Indian growth will define the growth of the Indo-Pacific region. And it's one that I think Canada can and should be a major partner to. Um, and it's an opportunity that I think Canada needs to realize for itself so that our peoples can be successful together. Now, here's the problem that I see in the foreseeable future is sometimes the communication which comes, and this is not a, 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 a Canadian issue per se. This is a Western issue. Um, I've said it before. I'll say it again. The problem with the West is that it thinks that its problems are universal problems and other people's problems are not even problems. And, and this is a genuine sentiment that comes from the other side of the world, which is the people who may be aligned or not aligned with the West, but who are not part of what is loosely called the West. The West tends to impose its views uh, in different ways, in different styles, whether it's in the form of values, whether it's in the form of governance structures. Now, by themselves, 
governance structures might be good by themselves. The values they propound must be good. Uh, uh, so, uh, to, to the annoyance of many people of my or my viewers, I'm actually very openly pro-West. I, I am very open about it. I like the West. But the problem is that that the way sometimes leaders from the West speak with other nations, they're not speaking with them. They're speaking at them. And there's a difference with speaking with someone as equals on the table and speaking at someone as if you're preachy, you're, you're preaching them. And now I understand sometimes it's for their own domestic audience and the domestic vote bank. And I get all of that. But the point is that all those small things add up to the problem. And Canada and India are not immune to that. Uh, I'm not saying India doesn't do it. India might well do those things that, that might annoy Canada. But Canada also might do those things that annoy India. I'll give you the biggest tangible example of that. Something that has a deep-rooted history uh, when it comes to the history of Canada and India is the horrific, uh, you know, Air India bombing. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, it was, if I remember to that, it is the biggest terrorist attack ever happened on Canadians, right? Because people tend to forget those people that died in the in the in those planes, they were Canadians. As a great Canadian journalist Terry Milevsky says, the problem is they were brown Canadians. Terry has said that in his book, and and that's that's the difference. Because if it, it was different skin colors, that terrorist attack would have. You know, taken different, uh, different uh, kind of uh, uh, attention or headlines, and there is this element inside Canada that has huge problems with the territorial integrity of India itself. Now, I I'll, I'll give you an example, buddy. I was going to rent a car to drive to Ottawa, right? Just before I'm a taking a right turn to go to the car rental place. This was in Bramley, Brampton. All right. So I'm giving you the place too. There was a big poster there. I did not take a photo. I didn't give a shit. I just moved on. Khalistan referendum, right? It, it said in big words, Khalistan referendum 2022. The funny bit is they keep on delaying the referendum. They, I thought, they, you know, this is like those Armageddon Christians, right? They, the Armageddon is coming. We're all going to die. It's been coming from 2012. So, so they also keep postponing. COVID kind of, you know, laid a, laid a jugular on their plans. But the point is, how does India and Canada build a robust relationship because we are now going to talk about serious steps that you believe that can build Indo-Canadian relationships. But before we build that and we talk about the good stuff, we need to talk about the ugly stuff too. So how do we do that when you have active Canadians living in Canada, working and openly promoting the balkanization of India? So how does India get over that? I don't think India needs to get over it. I think um, it's a really fascinating way in which you constructed the question, Kushal. So let me let me start by addressing this concept of the West and of the East. Um, at the end of the Cold War, uh, a lot of the Cold War assumptions continued into the what we now know as the Clinton presidency. Uh, a lot of 
you know, internationalist ideas like postmodernism, uh, thinking around development, uh, really became the bedrock of much of the Western strategic community. And in the Western strategic community, I think there is a realization that those assumptions often come off as condescension, that they do not partner with the realities of other countries' needs or priorities. Uh, and often the academic perspectives of the West are not helping partners in other parts of the world succeed. And that kind of condescension is one that I think is coming to a head over the question of Ukraine and Russia's invasion of it, over China's threatening of Taiwan and of its uh, border disputes with India. One of the things that I think the world has to update itself on is to look at these big institutions, whether it's the United Nations or the World Bank and the development banks around the world, how they work to invest in uh, the prosperity of other countries, um, the economic arrangements like the G7 and the G20. I think what we're seeing around the world right now is a global realignment in which the concept of what some have called a two-front war uh, is beginning to be grappled by democracies in the world today. And so, you know, Indian democracy has come a very long way in that regard. Um, and it has come a very long way from the 1980s, where there was horrific levels of violence and bloodshed in Punjab and elsewhere, or even in the early 70s with the partition of Bangladesh. You know, you see it, India has had gone through so much uh, religious and ethnic strife in realizing the democracy it holds today, that our generation of people have a different sensibility as to what the future affords. Our generation also has, you know, uh, the smartphone. We can now connect across oceans and continents and between languages with so much ease uh, that a lot of the myths of Western prosperity uh, or the fundamental values that had uh, underpinned it um, are now becoming a lot more transparent and, and easy to critique. And in the West, what we have seen is an ideology take hold of you know, postmodern progressivist ideals in which you know, a lot of the elite institutions in the West continue to purvey rather than the underpinnings of what made the West prosperous, which was a rule of law, market-based economy, uh, conviction-based leadership, a lot of those things have been distilled into, you know, what we're hearing as wokeism. That wokeism transforms into many ways. It's racial-based victim identity. It is that it's not about equality of opportunity, it's about equality of outcome. Uh, and it gets repurposed around various narrow agendas and interests, including some extremist elements. In the 1980s, um, to your point, uh, one of the greatest travesties of the Air India uh, bombing was that the Canadian victims were not seen to be fully Canadian. Uh, police institutions, political institutions didn't prioritize it the way it ought to have, which is why later on, um, you know, the Harper government was able to launch uh, an investigation, a royal commission. Uh, it commemorated the, the, the Air India bombing attack in a beautiful monument in Toronto. Uh, but by then, the, a lot of the evidence had decayed that was required to bring people to justice for the, on behalf of the victims uh, of, the, of, the, of the fallen. A lot of what I think 
has happened since is that in Canada, um, the ideas that had fueled this extremism have perpetuated, whereas in India, uh, through reparations and justice that took some time to come, uh, India has moved on. Indian Punjab has moved on. Um, the idea of Khalistan is not something that people appreciate, but the security agencies in Canada in the last few years had indicated that you know, this, this type of extremism, Khalistani extremism, now poses one of the top five national security risks to the country. So there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of things that have continued on in the last 20 to 30 years that are no longer pitched to the realities of India's reconciliation and India, India's development, uh, in which Canadian society is struggling to, to get a handle on. Um, in our country, in Canada, we have the balance of free speech and of uh, things that go beyond free speech, which is a call to violence and a call to extremism. And a lot of extremist entities in this country are very effective at exploiting those rules of free speech to expand audiences, uh, to inculcate that ideology, dangerous as it is in the, in the minds of their young, uh, and end up uh, mobilizing them to create constituencies of political support that politicians tend to be dependent on. And so I think what Canada and India can do together is uh, take a step back, understand the realities of the world today in which we live, in which we have the concept of a two-front war that all our democracies are wrestling with. Canadian strategic planners need to be as focused on ensuring India's territorial integrity, whether it is promoted through geopolitical rivals in Beijing or by ideologies backed by uh, by Pakistan's deep state in um, in India's border regions and in communities around the world. Fair enough. Uh, I hear uh, what you're saying, and I and I sympathize with the same too. But but like I said, the problem for something like look, I know you won't say it, but look this this particular element that we're talking about in Canada, they've gone after you too. Let's be very clear about it. And and I know you'll not talk about it, but I will talk about it because I don't know why you guys don't talk about it. But I will. And I will mention this and, I, and I'll mention this why it's important. So first of all, uh, I don't know why Shivala is always kind of uh, doing. So the Khalistani element went after you. Uh, it, it, the history is long. Um, they've, they've gone after MLI. They've gone after uh, everyone possible. That 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 can be thought of on planet Earth. Uh, they try to shut people down through defamation. Uh, they try to shut people down through multiple routes. Uh, uh, sometimes even murder. Sometimes attacking uh, veteran Canadian journalists like Balraj Dil. Again, you know, uh, I, I wish I had the courage of Balraj Dil because when when I got him on the podcast, I asked him. I was like, Balraj sir, would you like to uh, talk about the Khalistani attack on you. And he looked me straight in the eye and said, Puttar, I'm not a victim. Do not talk about it. Let's not make the podcast about Khalistanis attacking me. Let's make the podcast about what they do. That's a brave man. I wish I could, you know, I had his kind of courage. And I don't know how he does what he does, but he does it. But the point is that they've tried to shut you down too, in their own way. And now, again, 
Shuvaloy might find this very uncomfortable, but uh, this is kind of my surprise on Shuvaloy in the podcast. They have gone after him, and I think that these are good people that need support. Now tell me, how can many others support you in this? And no matter how much you find uncomfort, the, this uncomfortable, I'm going to make you say it. So you have no choice now. Oh, thank you, Krishan. That's nice of you. Um, listen, uh, the greatest thing about an independent think tank like the McDonald Lurie Institute is that we get to tell the truths that are uncomfortable for politicians to talk about. We get to describe the realities uh, in ways that, um, you know, associations worried about cancel culture uh, have a harder time addressing. And we do it by really steeping our research in really high quality um, analysis. Uh, and whenever we publish a, a paper or an idea, we try and make sure that we, it's, it's held to the highest academic standard, but is relevant to the debate of the day. Uh, so the report that I think you're describing is the one that Terry Molesky authored, a legendary Canadian journalist and perhaps one of the strongest advocates for uh, justice on behalf of the Canadians killed on that Air India fight. Um, he published a report called Khalistan, a project of Pakistan, where he focused on the origins of the Khalistan idea and its manifestation in the Canadian body politic. And what that report became was deeply inconvenient to extremist organizations inside the country because it produced facts and empirical research and analysis that, um, you know, uh, they then would have to answer to in terms of what their advocacy comprised. That their version of history usually starts in the early 1980s, rather in the wider context or what happened since. And their narrow disposition around the specific idea creates a culture of victimhood, which in turn pollutes uh, generations of young activists, uh, wasting their time and their lives on things that are uh, not focused on harmony between communities, but on vengeance. And I think at the heart of the at, the at the heart of what we're trying to do at the Institute is to say, reason prevails over emotion and we should describe uh, the facts as they are. Now that report uh, obviously disturbed some extremists and a particularly litigious group, uh, which was founded by an individual who is known to, you know, burn the tricolor in ranting online videos uh, and known to bully and intimidate, you know, Canadians of all communities, Hindu, Sikh, whatever uh, might be the uh, on the order of the day. And that litigious effort has tried to silence the McDonald-Laurie Institute from continuing to tell the true story around our country's, uh, our opportunity uh, and the need for Canada to support a united India. And so, you know, when you deal with litigious organizations, uh, there is a legal cost to us as well. Uh, we are not backed by, you know, major corporates in India or by big companies in Canada. We're backed by family foundations, uh, individual donors, um, and we are motivated by, by making sure we do the best service to Canadians by uh, advancing the ideas important to Canada. And so we have to deal with that type of litigious intimidation. Uh, independent of that, there's also the idea of uh, propaganda that, you know, various fronts and news outlets, I'll put them in quotations, uh, uh, submit about our people, uh, where they try and, you know, uh, 
purvey outright lies about our motivations, our histories, our, our actual work. Uh, Balraj is exactly right. We don't, we're not, I don't think there's a, a need to celebrate the idea of being a victim here. At the end of the day, a lot of us have backbone. We have the courage of our convictions. We know we're on the right side of history. We've done our homework and we present the facts uh, for what they are, um, inconvenient as it might be to extremist coalitions. So, uh, you know, we're not going to back down. We're not going to stop. We're not going to, you know, feel somehow that we need to be more measured when we already are measured. Um, and we'd be open to hearing any actual criticisms of the findings uh, which have yet to be produced uh, rather than, you know, just banging the drum about things that the report did not even touch upon. So, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, I think, I thank you for raising it. Uh, but I've been through personally much more difficult conditions in Iraq and Afghanistan and dealing with extremists where some thugs in Toronto and Vancouver won't slow me down. Yeah. But well, so just to let everybody know, this is where you go and support, um, the McDonald Laurie Institute, full disclosure, I do. And I have no problem in saying I do. They are doing good work. So if you want, you can donate once, you can donate monthly. I'm someone who donates monthly. And uh, they're a good institute. They're doing good work. And if you want good things to happen, because at the end of the day, full disclosure, I like Canada as much as I like India. The point is that if you want two democracies to prosper, we need to support good things. We need to support good causes, which is why I have put this thing on the screen. Now, if you're listening to the audio-only version, you will have to go to the website, which is mcdonaldlaurier.ca, and you can go and click on the support button there. Uh, I will also leave a link in the description of the podcast for the McDonald Laurier Institute and to support them. But once again, why I'm talking about this is that Imagine what people have to go through just to do good academic work. Balraj Dil, for just talking about a bad element in society, was brutally physically attacked. Head broken, hands broken, legs broken. The man literally carried himself in a half-dead state to the elevator, goes upstairs, and then somebody who was a good person, took him to the hospital. Now, luckily, in the case of McDonald Laurier, they have not faced that. But the point is, there are different ways of intimidating different people. And this podcast is about Indo-Canadian relations. If India and Canada needs to have a single and a very good, a very steady relation, India has to remain an entity which is stable. And stability can only be maintained that there is no balkanization of India. Now that we have gotten, uh, you know, uh, and I know, you know, Shuvala might find it uncomfortable that I brought this up, but we have to talk about these things because until and unless we don't talk about these things, we don't find solutions. And, and any decent human being would want the West and India to have good relations. It doesn't mean that India needs to have bad relations with Russia or with any other part of the world. It just means that India needs to have good relations with the West and Western interests and Indian interests will, you know, basically fall on the same lines on most cases. But yes, there is this element inside Canada that tries its level best. And let me tell you, Indo-Canadian relations have suffered because of that. And anybody who uh, wants to, you know, deny that, they can deny it, but the problem is there and it has damaged Indo-Canadian relationships. But having said that, now, Shuvaloy, let's talk about tangible ways that you believe that both India and Canada, because I want to talk about good things now. We've, we've, we've 
we've thrown the negativity out of the window now now how do we build on this now how do we build on indo canadian relationship maybe you know in in actual focused ways through tangible ways where we can build that like uh, like uh, through trade through cultural exchanges how do we do that uh it's a great question honestly i appreciate you raising it because i think that without a common understanding of security whether it is geopolitical pressures extremist pressures it's very difficult to realize uh, shared uh, prosperity for both india and for canada and so i think one precedes the other and we have to get our house in order in the relationship on our shared understanding of what threatens both our countries uh as well as an agenda for what we do next so on that um you know canada is in the process of defining its indo-pacific strategy it's a late comer to the game every other western country has done it and so we wish this government great success in getting it done as quickly as possible uh the latest debate is that they're deciding whether or not the word china should be involved in it which is a bit which tells you the sad state of discourse in that and the debate in, in in how they're thinking of it but let me offer some suggestions as to how i think uh their indo-pacific commission that is providing advice to the government on what to do on the indo-pacific uh how they could think about it uh, first of all <clears throat> I think it's understanding clearly the security risks in the Indo-Pacific in which Canada has engaged interests. So one is the rise of China and how to manage it, and the second is extremist ideologies often pervaded by Pakistan's deep state in South Asia and across the region. Um and its importation of uh extremist causes from the Middle East. So I, I th- those are I think core parts big questions around how our shared security interests intersect and increasingly will do so on prosperity it, the trade relationship between canada and india has uh been really moving forward on its own inertia it shows you what happens when governments get out of the way uh, no matter how bad the political relationship might be between the governments of the day the economic relationship with canada and india is just booming it's booming in the form of investment that Canadian pension funds, you know, all Canadian taxpayers who rely on their pensions are seeing a huge amount of investments going into Indian development, rightly so, uh because that country's transformation is going to be worth investing in uh and to see successful. Uh it's increasing in terms of the number of Indo- Indians that come to Canada for education because like I said at the beginning of our podcast, there's no country better on earth <laughs> than Canada uh in terms of even though we have our problems There's no country better than earth than Canada especially for Indian students and we're seeing scores of them come to Canadian schools and uh some stay behind some continue back to India but all with an attachment to 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 Canada which is one that can be built upon um on fuels and fertilizers Canada is has the potential to be a global powerhouse when Canadians can realize our clean Canadian energy uh infrastructure to access international markets uh when we can start getting those pipelines built uh particularly to the Canadian Pacific uh we can fuel India's rise not just with oil and gas but also with uranium uh Canadian energy transition technologies are strong and very successful from hydrogen to carbon capture and sequestration uh and a range of other energy transition technologies that actually work Uh, these are things that i think can be instrumental to indian development 
particularly in you know a lot of the pollution constraints that India has to confront in its own growth. Um, and of course, in fertilizers and others, you know, India's agricultural sector uh, is beginning the process of modernizing. Uh, and I think that there's or not just from fertilizers, but from farming technologies and from agrotechnologies, foods, food storage, cold climate storage equipment, things that can ensure that Indian uh, grown agriculture doesn't decay and waste in Indian um, uh, in Indian uh, uh, storage units. Uh, these are all areas that Canada can be instrumental to uh, India's growth and development. Uh, and of course, finances, investments. I think we're going to see a huge uh, expansion of Canadian investment. In fact, the Canada-India Business Council and the Business Council of Canada two weeks ago released a report defining India as a gateway to the Indo-Pacific. I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, a lot of these business community leaders in Canada understand the opportunity India provides to Canada. And I don't think that they're wrong to say that we should be making India as much a priority as we made China a priority 40 years ago, uh, knowing that India has a much more resilient and successful democracy uh, to invest in that will allow for uh, you know, stable long-term growth. So I, I think that looking at India as a gateway for the Indo-Pacific, as a place in which our security partnerships can expand from cyber to cold climate warfare to marine and submarine and space technologies, that's a, that's a critical part. Coming to more understanding of how to confront extremist ideologies together uh, because they create problems for the unity of both countries. Uh, focusing on India as an economic gateway to the Indo-Pacific, whereas Indian growth will have a major effect on Indo-Pacific growth. Indian trading arrangements will have a major uh, influence on how the rule of law will underpin the region's prosperity. These are all areas that Canada should contribute to. And then on the basis of our shared values, of our understanding of the rule of law and of democracy itself, in places like Sri Lanka, in the Indian near neighborhood, uh, I think Canada and India are natural partners to be able to help strengthen the democratic institutions that will create and provide for much more longer term stability than, um, than some of the autocratic tendencies of India's neighbors today. Yeah, the the only worry I have, Shuvala, when it comes to the area of trade is, again, going to be, I think, the sticking factor when it comes to Indo-Canadian trade. Maybe in this whole climate change bogey that has been raised all the time where the Indian perspective is going to be, look, you guys had all the fun. Now you want us to stop having fun and increase the cost of living of our citizens by putting in unrealistic uh, demands on us. We have the same problem in Canada. We have, a, we, have, we, have, we, have a, we have a carbon tax that, you know, a federal government insists on imposing on Canadians in the midst of unprecedented inflation. So, you know, I'll tell you that the Canadian political class is imposing the same standards on Canada, or at least, you know, seemingly attempting to. <laughs> yeah, man. I, on, and just on a side note, I don't know when Canada is going to get rid of the Arrive Can app. If there ever was a single biggest pain in the ass in my life, it is the Arrive Can app. It's ridiculous, you know. I mean, Arrive Can app is, a, is an illustration of the mobility issues that Canada has. You know, we want to be a business partner, but but we're not making it easy for people to do business. And there's a lot of Canadians that want to do business in India, a lot of Indians who want to do business in Canada, and we don't need a ridiculous app getting in the way of that growth and potential. We need to get that out of the way. 
Like every single day when I go on Canadian Twitter, yes, there is this small little corner of Twitter which has Canadian things discussed too. And you'll just uh, you'll just see photos or videos of lines piling up on different airports in Canada. Lines, lines of human beings. And all thanks to the shitty uh, COVID uh, requirements uh, of uh, of the Canadian government. But, 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 but. Uh, on the trade, uh, on the trade bit, now, this is a very good question, Shivala, that a viewer has asked. So it's actually a very intelligent question. Currently, how do U.S. and Canada's strategic interests align? And what are some of the troubling areas in that relationship? And two, because it's follow-up by that, how much is the U.S. influencing Canadian foreign policy? Because that matters a lot for India, because we want to have a separate relation with Canada. We want to have a separate relation with America. Now, if Canadian foreign policy becomes a proxy for American foreign policy when it comes to India, that's also problematic, right? It's a great question. Um, the United States provides, you know, 80% of Canada's export economy. Uh, our goods and services go across that border every day to the tune of billions. Uh, the United States provides 100% of Canada's security. You know, our partnership with the United States, um, our alliance with the United States is deep and historic and extremely successful. The trading relationship that Canada and America enjoy across the longest undefended border in the world is the model for trade agreements uh, around the world in terms of how prosperous relationships can happen. With the United States, Canada negotiates eyeball to eyeball on key individual issues, but at the heart of our relationship, the United stand. Um, there will be those in Canada who say that Canada's caught in the middle between uh, America and China in this period of competition. My view is that that's a myth. It's never been a question. Uh, we require the United States to be successful in the world for our own prosperity and our own security. And, uh, and we should be proud of that. Now, in terms of Pacific markets, Indo-Pacific markets, India included, um, in some ways, Canada and America can be competitors in exporting energy. Uh, to India, but I think that Indian demand for energy is so high that this is something that Canada and America should continentally cooperate on, making our energy more accessible to fueling the growth of countries in the Indo-Pacific like India, uh, more accessible to reducing Russian reliance in Europe on Russian energy, uh, and those are partnerships that can be expanded and grown while Canada develops its own infrastructure to get its energy to market. Um, the American-Indian partnership in the Quad with Japan and Australia is one in which Canada is not a part of. It is one in which I think in the Indian interest, it is to see Canada an increasing part of so that we can contribute to Indo-Pacific security, maritime security, setting the standards around how technology would be used and how its abuse would be confronted. These are all critical conversations and Canada is presently left out. So I would imagine that, you know, people both in New Delhi and Washington would welcome a stronger role from Canada when it comes to how we contribute to Indo-Pacific security. Um, in the trading regime that uh, the United States and India have launched together for uh, a new look across the Indo-Pacific region, Canada has been left out again. Again, I think there's probably consensus in New Delhi and in Washington that it would be good to have a Canadian presence on that trading architecture for the region. Uh, in, in the negotiations launched by President Biden, uh, which Prime Minister Trudeau is presently outside of completely. Um, 
So when you think of, you know, where Canada and America converge, I think Canada, I think America and India are probably a little more aligned than Canada could be with India. So I would suggest that there's a lot of opportunity for Canada to, to grow into its Pacific and Indo-Pacific relationships, particularly with India. And I think that it would be welcome in both countries to see that uh, measure up to the task of what lies ahead uh, over the next 40 to 50 years, which is very, very big challenges. So uh, I, 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 is the news correct that uh, India and Canada, in spite of whatever we are going through, is also in the process of signing some sort of an anti-terrorism pact or anything of that sort? I hope it's true. I hope it's true. I saw that the United Kingdom um, defined a cornerstone of its relationship in India with a common fight against against extremism. I think it's laudable. The British and Indian relationship on that, I think, is laudable and very important. Um, I looked at it very carefully, and I think it has a lot to offer um, a lot of Western democracies uh, in its relationship with, with India. I, I also think that the trade negotiations between Canada and India have been rebooted. I really hope, you know, I wish... Minister Piyush Goyal and Minister Mary Ng all the best in getting it done uh, as quickly as possible, because I think that we need to get on with the business of, of, of our partnership um, and to make sure that it is meaningful for both countries. And I think I'm encouraged by what I'm hearing about those trade negotiations in, in a big way. Uh, so I think that, you know, these, these things being kind of fleshed out and discussed uh, as adult democracy ought to with each other. Uh, is a really helpful advent, and and I hope that you know um, both countries can rise above domestic constituencies that draw that, that tend to draw uh, that tend to poison poison the conversation. But uh, it's too important for us to to let slide. We have to get it right. Yeah, I I, I agree with you that we should rise above domestic constituencies. But I think. Uh, just my opinion. You don't have to agree with me. I think that's more of a problem on the Canadian side than the Indian side. The Indian side is pretty consistent on these issues, right? But the Canadian side, look, if you're going to have the Prime Minister of Canada visiting India and in his uh, visiting concierge or, or entourage, you're going to have actual people convicted of crimes. That's going to be a problem, Shubhalai. Listen, that you know what? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. That damage was horrific and it's been done. And uh, the Canadian Prime Minister continues to wear it, uh, like his fashion choices during his visit. It's, it's just, you know, it's a travesty that that's what it's come down to, um, which is why I think that, you know, uh, ultimately, um, you know, getting serious about the issues that define what Canada needs to focus on is a task that I'd recommend to this government. Um, and I think that, you know, they've had a problem with that performance politics, whether it's with the pandemic or with relations with other countries around the world or on on issues like energy transition. I think Canadians are growing really tired of it. Our country is experiencing, you know, in, in many parts of our country is experiencing huge economic anxiety today. Uh, many people are already living in recession. Um, they're worried about the price of everything going up and we, we cannot afford to waste time in creating the pathways to growth, of which India, I think, is a critical part. And um, and I hope that the Prime Minister actually takes it seriously. So hopefully the next time that, you know, the Prime Minister visits India, which I would encourage to happen sooner rather than later, they do a much better job. They learn from their, their mistakes and they focus on the things that can actually bolster and grow the relationship, one that they inherited. 
you'll recall that the relationship that Prime Minister Trudeau inherited was one in which we saw an Indian Prime Minister come to Canada for the first time in 45 years, um, signaling the importance of Canada to India uh, and the potential of the relationship to both countries. Uh, I'd love, I'd love if you can rewind the clock, I'd love to go back to that as a floor from where we succeed, where we grow the relationship rather than spend all this time trying to just catch up to where we were almost seven, eight years ago now. Yeah, I guess the Canadian Prime Minister could do a little bit of less of Bhangra and, and maybe focus on uh, other things that, that would really help Indo-Canadian relations in that sense. And and I and I hope uh, I hope that happens. Obviously, I'm biased to Canada. I like Canada. Uh, and I obviously love India. That's my country. And uh, and I hope that. But uh, it's only fair that I let you talk about places where you feel India is not maybe putting its weight or where it should do enough and it's not from a Canadian perspective. So so what uh, what do you think? Where where could India maybe improve in this uh, in this Indo-Canadian journey where you feel India is not doing enough? I appreciate the opportunity. And you know what? Like we talked earlier about not condescending. I, I'm sensitive to Indian um, requirements to protect its own borders and its security arrangements with its neighbors. It's a very difficult neighborhood. I'm quite sympathetic to what India has to confront. And I don't think it's my business to lecture India on what its interests are when it knows very well what its interests are and it will pursue those interests as it must. Um, the one thing I think that the wider strategic community in Delhi is beginning to realize, and I say this as a friend and observer to it, um, is the role that Beijing plays in Russia, the role that Chinese companies are playing in Russia. And I think they're beginning to wake up to the concept that, you know, Russia may not have, may not be what it was during the Cold War for India moving forward um, on a lot of things. And that increasingly, you know, Russia is taking softer positions on Indian sovereignty in Kashmir. Russia is taking, you know, the Taliban's case forward in Afghanistan rather than, you know, allies for Afghan secular democracy. Um, Russia exploits its defense supply chains to its quote unquote partners for political leverage, uh, which is not a very reliable security partner when you think about it in the long term that Russia in so many ways is becoming a farm for Chinese companies, a uh, place for mineral exploitation. It's nickel is being bought up by China, that it's gas is going to discounted prices to China, that the entire Russian oligarch class is now falling under the spell of Beijing's one belt, one road, for which it views Russia as a critical partner in Eurasia uh, and in economic and military arteries to Europe and the Middle East. So I think as New Delhi comes to terms with a relationship that is transforming under its feet with Russia, uh, there is an opportunity to expand a relationship with the West. But at the same time, I would tell Western capitals to look at Indian sovereignty issues more clearly, especially the way in which you have extremists coming, coming across the border and creating instability in the nation's capital, but also in parts of the border. Uh, drugs, the illegal flow of drugs and extremist ideologies into India, uh, the way in which the Chinese have challenged Indian borders and are trying to redefine the map. Um, I think Western capitals need to be a lot more energetic about defending India's territorial sovereignty. I also think a lot of Western commentators need to stop looking at India as a proxy to attack those they disagree with in the West. You know, this idea, quote unquote, of 
you know, Hindu nationalism and the idea that somehow Indian press is being diminished. You open up any newspaper anywhere in India and across the editorial pages, you will find opinions thrashing the Modi government. Uh, there's no diminishment of free speech in India. It's quite active, uh, formally and informally. So I think in, in Western capitals, I think, you know, they, they should apply standards to India that they would apply to themselves. Um, and uh, and to try and take India's strategic considerations and its de democratic and economic development much more seriously than they traditionally have. In fairness, many in the West have actually figured that out, therefore are, you know, pitching uh, their relationship with India on the right trajectory, whether it is uh, the United Kingdom, uh, France, Germany, etc. Canada has to catch up to Washington and others. Uh, so. So maybe that's a way that I can try and you know respond to your question in terms of where I think uh, New Delhi can be um, uh, a more full part of the type of international order we require to succeed uh, with wars brewing uh, both in the Pacific but also a full-blown war that's uh, you know uh, being waged uh, in the Atlantic uh, in, in, in Atlantic countries, particularly in Ukraine. Another interesting thing that I was uh, happy to figure out was that even Canada has uh, banned Huawei, right? The 5G, the entire 5G network. No, it took them It took them years to come to this conclusion. It, it, ridiculously so. Um, you know, the, the Canadian government had plenty of opportunity to ban Huawei before the Chinese took, before Beijing took uh, Canadian, uh, Canadians Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor hostage over Huawei. Um, so yeah, the decision has been made to ban Huawei, which is a, a good decision. It came a lot too late. Um, and now it's really about setting a timeline to take out existing Huawei technologies in Canadian telecommunications infrastructure so that it cannot be abused in the future. So hundred percent, that decision is a welcome one, but it needs to be backed by actually building much wider technology, technology partnerships with India. Uh, with uh, democracies around the world in which the norms around how technology is governed will be defining. So, you know, I think it was an early first step. There's many more steps that need to happen. And I worry that the government is not bringing the energy it should to it. All right. So, okay, two things over here. Um, I guess point number one is, you know, India is all, okay. By the way, Abhijit is watching this chat. So full disclosure. <laughs> He's, he's watching this discussion. So uh, no, I, I told Abhijit if he has any questions, he can ask them to you. And he has raised these questions. Of course he has. Yes. You know, and, and Abhijit is always playing the spoiler. Abhijit sucks for the record. So <laughs> so here's, a, here's what he says. He's made two points. Ask Shubaloy that India has always been cautious about, quote, liberal democracy in Afghanistan. It's also been engaging Taliban robustly, more so since the Haqqanis are taking on Pakistan. Second, Russia in China's pocket is a strategic nightmare for India. Why would we not to keep them apart? We spent the first half of the Cold War trying to make Russia and China fight, and we succeeded. There you go. Well, um, I think in Afghanistan, um, the Taliban Haqqani regime is deeply divided with other Taliban elements. Their conquest of Afghanistan a year ago is going poorly for the Afghan people and for their attempt to normalize the Taliban Haqqani regime in Western theaters. Um, 
I think that, you know, I used to run massive public opinion research inside Afghanistan, uh, sample sizes of 50, 60,000 people. Um, and one of the questions that my colleagues would ask would be, you know, who's the most popular country that's helping the country that's helping Afghanistan and who's the most unpopular country? The most popular country every single time was India. Um, and the most unpopular country, unsurprisingly, was Pakistan. Because across all Afghanistan, there is an awareness that Pakistan's deep state uh, has been waging a campaign across the country to keep it unstable. Maybe most Afghans wouldn't realize, but they probably do on their own way, that it's part of a policy of strategic depth, um, which is part of, you know, which is Pakistan's vengeance for the partition of Bangladesh um, and the obsession of its intelligence community uh, at the expense of the Pakistani people. I think with Russia moving to different partnerships in Afghanistan, um, my sense is that India is going to have to figure out how to deal with the reality of those who govern Afghanistan in the short term until um, something better is created for the Afghan people. So I'll, I'll stop on, on that there. Um, and what was the second question, Kushal? Or the, the second question was uh, on basically on Russia was Russia in China's pocket ah, is a okay. nightmare for us. Yeah, listen, um, Henry Kissinger had exactly the same perspective that it would be good to keep China and Russia divided. Um, and I don't, I'm not a fan of what Henry Kissinger has done across Asia, right? So I, I don't know if um, the realization needs to be that, you know, these two countries being competitive with each other is a thing. The reason I say that is because Russia is not what it used to be 40 years ago. It is a tiny economy. It is largely a gas station uh, that has, you know, lots of armaments that it can wage war in Ukraine, but not succeed. Like, think what you will about what Ukrainians uh, have had to put up with. But you cannot, you cannot diminish the kind of commitment the Ukrainians have had to expel Russian invaders. This is a small country dealing with a former superpower, uh, a former superpower who does not have the capacity to succeed in its military ambitions. Um, so I would say, you know, uh, a partnership between Russia and China is already there. It has arrived. Uh, it is not the type of partnership that I think the Kremlin would have wished for because it's not them as equal partners of Beijing. It's them as completely subservient to Beijing's priorities and increasingly so because of its economic isolation. And whatever India would do with Russia would not be able to displace the kind of capital and support that the Chinese would put into the country. More importantly, I think, are the people-to-people -people linkages that India has with Moscow to be able to counsel more reasonable decisions among people outside of the country today uh, and to prepare for um, you know, a, a better partnership with a more modern Russia, which I worry is a, a still a long time to come. But uh, you know, I, I would more be, I'd be more concerned about how that union, that, that domination of Beijing, of Moscow, uh, what that means for Indian partnerships. And I think that Indian decision makers understand that, which is why we're seeing all of these new alignments and partnerships and alliances being built out from New Delhi. Well, fair enough. Uh, you know what? One of these days, maybe next month, I'm going to get you and Abhijit both on the podcast and you guys can figure it out. Yeah, it sounds like fun. We'll yeah, we'll do that. But I have one more question from another viewer. So, and I'm going to read this. Uh, try and understand why these questions are the way they are is because 
Indians in general like the West and they don't understand what the West is doing. So everything comes from that sentiment most of the times. Does the West understand that interfering in other countries' internal affairs is a two-way street and that recent immigrants from India who go to other countries will have different political views than that of immigrants who went before 2000s and that of people of Indian origin born in other Western nations? Are they mentally prepared for this? This is a very good question. And I think it, again, adds to the entire relation between Western countries and India. Listen, I think um, it's a great question because you're absolutely right. I think it's a generational question, right? I think that for our generation, people who are coming from India uh, have different expectations than our parents' generation may have had. Um, of course, India is a very different country today than it was back then, right? Uh, and India is becoming a very different country in the next number of years. So as this transformation takes hold, um, I think it would help in, for, for especially your viewers in India to, to know that when Western elite institutions attack India and India's growth, it isn't about Indians or India's growth. It is that the, the things that are underpinning India's growth are being used as a proxy to attack a particular ideology in the West. Um, and that's not about India, even though it's painful to read. Uh, at, at the heart of it, um, you know, a lot of editorial boards, a lot of academic institutions, a lot of senior officials in Western bureaucracies, I think, would benefit from a genuine, humble education of India as it stands today, rather than be frozen of their conception of India in the 80s. Uh, and I think that's beginning to take hold, albeit slowly, especially in Canada. But you have partners like me and others who are working toward making those realities known to the wider public, to the politician, uh, and to the expert class so that better decisions can be made around uh, how Canada can partner with Indian growth and with Indians themselves and how the Indians that come to Canada can be successful um, in their own right. You know, Canada has huge shortages in all kinds of critical areas. And so much of what India offers, English speaking, um, pluralistic, um, well-educated individuals. I mean, these are people that I think can be essential to Canada's growth. Uh, so, you know, I think people, a lot of, a lot of ordinary Canadians understand that and increasingly will become a supporter of the idea of partnering more closely with India and condescending less to the Indian political class. This is a directly political question. And this is actually from, I think, an Indian living in Canada. Okay. Is the Liberal Party in Canada inherently anti-India? With Liberal Party dominance in Canadian politics, how can Shuvaloy hope for any improvement in Indo-Canadian relationships in the future? <laughs> Kushal, what are you doing to me? <laughs> so let me say, the McDonnell-Laurier Institute has both McDonald, Conservative founding Prime Minister of Canada, and Laurier, liberal, one of the first prime ministers of Canada um, in our name. And we do so because we uphold the tradition of, uh, of, of both perspectives and we honor both, both leaders. I think in Canada, um, there is uh, a lot of celebration of cultural and religious groups, whether you're from South India, East India, North India, you know, I'm Bengali, there's lots of Punjabis and Gujaratis. Uh, and many of these communities celebrate in their own languages and in their own customs and in their own religions. And it's, it's a beautiful thing because it's actually quite successful. What I think is absent is um, unity in the wider idea of a pro-India perspective. 
And if there was ever an opportunity or a time for that Indo-Canadian community to begin to articulate its priorities to politicians, that would be now. Um, and it would be to be full participants in Canada's democratic life as, as much as it's being, you know, participating in Canada's economic life. So could the Liberal Party one day come back to pro-India positions energetically? Sure. If people who believe in the idea of a Canadian and Indian relationship being successful demand that of their Liberal politicians. Uh, so far, I think much of those perspectives have been uh, less than energetically presented and a lot of work can happen in that. And, uh, you know, I hope that all of us can talk about how we can unite the views of not just Indo-Canadian communities, but the vast number of Canadians who also want a good relationship with India beyond our Indo-Canadian community. All right. So a very significant factor of India's relations with Canada and India's relation with anybody for that matter, let me tell you, is always hinging on how does that country behave with Pakistan? I don't know how else to say it. It is what it is. It is what it is. So how much of a role do you think the Pakistan factor is going to play in Indo-Canadian relationships? There's a vibrant and very successful Pakistani-Canadian community. And they are, you know, in Canada because Pakistan's become intolerable. Um, Pakistan's become intolerable to so many religious minorities. It's become intolerable to much of Pakistan's independent media and civil society. Um, you know, there is uh, a huge group of, Indo of, of Pakistani Canadians who are celebrated in Canadian life and ought to be successful in doing so. That's not the challenge. The challenge is when you have foreign interference on Canadian soil and you have that, yes, with the you know, apparatus of the Communist Party of China, you have that with propagandists coming from Moscow. You have that with the IRGC and uh, Iran's um, influence networks in Canada. And you have that with uh, the Pakistani deep state's presence who look to create divisions in Canada so that the Canada-India relationship cannot succeed. So I think that it requires uh, many in Ottawa to begin to realize that Pakistan uh, and its military have not been partners on the critical issues of the last 10 years. They've not been good partners in settling up on successfully as a stable democracy. They've not been partners in stemming the flow of extremist ideologies to Canada, rather they accelerate it. They've not been partners in, um, you know, helping humanitarian efforts to Afghanistan today. Uh, and until I think the Canadian strategic community is prepared to hold Pakistan to account for its sponsorship of terrorism and terrorist ideologies. Uh, it'll take some time for, for um, you know, uh, the standard that we expect the Canadian government to, to be realized. I would argue, though, that at the end of the day, India is such a bigger story than Pakistan. Um, and I'd agree. A lot, I'd, I'd imagine a lot of people in India would agree, too. Pakistan is an issue insofar as that it pervades terrorism into India. Nuclear power, but I would say that you know Delhi is properly focused on Beijing's decisions more than any other uh, Indo-Pacific country, as I think most serious people and most serious countries are. So you know, I would think that there is a lot to be done in partnership with Pakistani civil society um, and in encouraging Pakistani democracy to succeed. But to do that, we need to eliminate the hold that the military has on that country and its potential and its people. 
Um, and that requires holding them accountable, whether by Magnitsky sanctions or terror listings. But until that is done, uh, we will not take seriously the threat that Pakistan poses. Yeah, and and what I've from an Indian perspective, I think Pakistan actively funds the Khalistani movement too, and India has raised this question many times in the future. In fact, I'll tell you something very interesting has happened in the United Kingdom recently, where uh, Preeti Patel signed uh, a landmark uh, return deal with Pakistan. And I'm quoting Preeti Patel, who's currently, I think, the Home Minister now. She says, I make no apology for removing dangerous foreign criminals and immigration offenders who have no right to remain in the UK. The British public have quite rightly had enough of people abusing our laws and gaming the system so we can't remove them. This agreement, which I'm proud of to have signed with our Pakistani friends, shows the new plan for immigration in action and the government delivery. Our new Borders Act will go no uh, go, will go further and help end the cycle of last-minute claims and appeals that can delay removals. I'm just sharing this as an example of how tangible steps can be taken in dealing with things. Because at the end of the day, I don't know how to say this, but I'm going to say it. India is a much better option for most Western countries in terms of values, in terms of size of economy. Basically, in every way possible. That's about it. I don't know why uh, Western democracies uh, are not able to understand. And I'll also accept this one. I don't think you meant it as a criticism, but I actually do mean it as a criticism of my own viewers. Because I think in the Indian mind, Pakistan takes disproportionately more space. And I don't know why it is, because it reflects in many times in the questions I get asked when my guests come over. You you said it perfectly. Like the Indian state is now focusing on China because for them, China is the real thing, right? Pakistan is just a sideshow as far as the Indian state is concerned. And, and, And I agree with you, but maybe this could be our last closing remark because I'm conscious of your time, buddy. So if this was my last question to you, what do you think? Are your expectations and maybe a 10-year goal and a 20-year goal between two countries that I personally love a lot, both India and Canada, and I'm more biased to Canada in, in uh, and I think Canada is better than America. So all my Americans, please don't hate me. All my American subscribers don't hate me. I, I like Canada more. But But so what do you think? Can we as individuals who maybe have a voice, like you have a voice in Canada, I have a voice in India. What can we do practically to improve what, I don't know how else to say it, it has been a very dicey relationship that both our nations have. Demand practical outcomes in the short term. 10 years, 20 years is a lovely idea. But focus more on what can be accomplished in the next three years or two years. Realistic things, for example, collaborating more closely on defense innovation or collaborating more closely on scaling uh, startup technologies that develop India uh, and can be of benefit to Canada. Um, Focus on near-term wins when it comes to securing India's fuel requirements, whether it's uranium or energy. Canada should get super focused on getting that done so that we can actually be part of helping light more Indian homes at, you know, with, with our clean Canadian energy 
and to provide real strong energy transition technology so that India's pollution comes down for the benefit of the Indian people, uh, Indian rivers, Indian agriculture, all of it. Um, I think that the biggest thing, if I could really distill it, is to bring ambition to the relationship, to demand that politicians come up with tangible outcomes and move beyond the doldrums of the trade discussion that has dominated over the last 30 years. Don't just talk about trade. Talk about India as a serious strategic partner for Canada's success in the long term. Uh, take India's growth seriously uh, and demand that real outcomes can be achieved in, on tangible topics in the near term. Uh, by bringing ambition to this relationship, I think that's probably the one biggest thing, the biggest idea uh, that I could, do, I could leave with your viewers. That's what I would demand of, of, of Canadian leaders. Perfect. I think as far as I'm concerned, uh, I just hope Canada wakes up uh, to certain issues that are really sticking points when it comes to Indo-Canadian relations. And I don't know how that's going to happen until and unless the Canadian political establishment really realizes that it's harming their own interests. I think a stable India, a growing India, a territorially stable India too, is better for Canada. I think India can play a significant role in the Canadian growth story, if you ask me personally, I think India is a key factor in the Canadian growth story. And and it, it's not because you spoke about it. I actually believe in it. And that's why I wanted to talk about it. And uh, yes, America is always... And America is going to be a player. In the Indo-Canadian relationship, whether we like it or not, America is going to be a player in that too. Uh, in fact, it's in both India and Canada's interest that they make sure that America is becoming less and less of a player and we have a direct relationship as, as countries. But uh, I think with America right around the corner, it's never going to be po possible in, in that sense. But uh, Shuvala, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I hope uh, and wish uh, wish that you know the McDonald laurier institute grows uh, even bigger and bigger and bigger and we keep on having these discussions now this is your first time won't be the last time next time i think i'm going to get you and abhijit together because abhijit ha has been trolling me incessantly on the live chat which is very typical of that person uh, but uh, once again buddy thanks a lot for coming on the podcast I'll be happy to thrash Abhijit in, on your podcast next time we do this together. <laughs> uh, thank you for being a bridge between uh, two democracies that have nothing but potential to realize. So I'm honored to be here. Looking forward to being back. Really appreciate your time. And I hope this has been a benefit to your audience as well. All right, guys, before we wrap today's podcast, once again, in the description of the podcast, you're going to have three links. One is to Shivaloy's Twitter handle. Go and follow him on Twitter. Read his essays, his articles. He's a wonderful writer. I think he should write more. He writes less. But uh, uh, that is for some other day. Secondly, uh, I leave the link to basically Shula's website. Just click the link. You can go and read up his work. Third, I'm going to leave a link. And once again, I'm going to share the link once again for all of you. I'm going to share the link again of the McDonald Laurie Institute. And full disclosure once again. I support the McDonald Laurie Institute financially. <laughs> and I want, if you guys believe in good ideas, if you guys care for India, if you guys care for Canada, I know a lot of you Canadians listen to this podcast, either the audio version or the one on YouTube that we're doing right now. And please go and support the McDonald Laurie Institute. It is very important that we as folks in India and as Indians in Canada support good institutes. So go and support them. 
The link will be there in the description of the podcast. And as far as I'm concerned, you know the drill, guys. Subscribe to the Charvak Podcast YouTube channel or go on iTunes and Spotify and leave a nice review and you can listen to it over there. Support the podcast, like the video. You know, if you want to abuse me, please abuse me in the comments. Always remember, abuses are welcome because that helps the YouTube algorithm. It's just another thing to put me up on the top. So I don't care what you do on the comment section. Just keep typing there. As far as the other thing is concerned, you can become a member on YouTube. You can become a subscriber on Patreon. You can buy the Charvak Podcast merch or you can send your donations to UPI in India. I will see you guys next time. Until then, namaste, take care, bye-bye.